Last week, we covered John 14, 9, which says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Next week, just a little sneak peek, we're going to be talking about John 14, 12, where Jesus says, is that right? Are you going to cover that? Okay. So far, that's what we're on track to do. I won't be here, so it's, it's up to you, but I'm, I'm thinking this is probably what you should do. John 14, 12, which says uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, these works and greater will you do. So my question is, here we are sitting in Janesville, Wisconsin in the 21st century, and I feel personally that there's a little disparity in my life compared to where Jesus was talking about. You know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If, if you love me, you'll, you'll do the works that I do and greater. And then there's like little me standing here, right? So why the disparity? And, and my question is, you know, when the world sees us, do they see Jesus? When, when we're out in public, how often are we really concerning ourselves with our Father's work versus our own agendas? Now, I, I know that Jesus is the God who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. I know that he says that he who began the work is faithful to complete it. But he's also the one who says that he is the one that causes us to will and to do for his good pleasure. So my question is, do we have a part to play in this whole process? Or do we just kind of like sit and wait to be perfected? Is, this something, is there something that we can be doing as we go along in this? So that's what I want to talk about today. Before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful that you have put on my heart this message. And I pray, Lord, that as I present it, that it will be your love that comes through. Lord, your love is never failing. It's never ending. It's hard to understand the height, the depth, the width, but Lord, it is love. You are love. And I pray that that is what comes out today, your love for your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So where I want to start today is with a story of a man named Hien Pham. Hien Pham was a Vietnamese interpreter who helped share the gospel for English missionaries during the Vietnam War. You know, I don't know if I've got the sermon or if he does, right? <laughs> Someday, maybe sooner than later, guys. So Hien Pham was a Vietnamese interpreter during the time of the Vietnam War. And he, shortly after the fall of South Vietnam, was imprisoned. And his jailers knew that he had worked with Christian missionaries sharing the gospel. And so for some reason, the jailers made it their mission to try to indoctrinate him against the Christian faith. So what they did is they restricted all of the reading that he had to communist propaganda papers written in Vietnamese. So here's this guy in a Vietnamese prison, a Christian who is given nothing to read but a steady diet of communist propaganda. Well, the daily overdose of the writings of Marx and Engels finally started to take their toll on poor Hien, to the point where he began to wonder, have I been lied to? Is God real? Has the West lied to me? And the more he thought about this, the closer he came to a decision. Until finally one night he said, you know what, tomorrow morning, when I wake, I'm no longer going to pray to God. In fact, I'm no longer going to even think about God because I'm pretty sure he doesn't exist. So the next morning, what does God do to prove that he's alive? He has the camp commander come to him and say, your job today is to clean the latrine. Now, this was the most dreaded job in the jail. 
when you, when you think about this kind of jail, you got to think about like third world country. Like this is this is worse than even our imagines will our imaginations will probably allow us to get. So he went into the bathroom. And as he was emptying out a tin can full of toilet paper, because they didn't have any running water, of course, his eye crossed something that he thought was English writing on a piece of paper. So quickly, he grabbed it where no one could see, and he washed it off, folded it up, and stuffed it in his hip pocket. Having not seen anything written in English for a long time, he was really curious, what is this? So that night, in the cover of darkness under the mosquito net, he pulled out this crumpled, still damp piece of paper, and he began to read. Up in the top corner, it said, Romans chapter 8. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What then shall we say in response to all of this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, how will he not also freely give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Imagine reading that. Just that night before, you were on the verge of surrendering to the evil of the world. And here the next day, you come across this passage. Now, he knew his Bible. He knew that there couldn't be a more relevant and convicting scripture to provide him strength before he succumbed to evil. It broke him. The next day, he went to the camp commander and volunteered to clean the latrine. And he did this day in and day out, week in and week out, because he had found out that one of the uh, camp officers was using the New Testament as toilet paper. And so he would carefully clean off a page here and a page there. And he eventually retrieved a significant portion of the New Testament. I want to pause the story there because it was at this point when I heard this story years ago, <laughs> I was convicted. I thought about this like as kind of like a thought exercise, like what if I had to clean the bathroom every time before I grab my Bible? Would I have a really clean bathroom or would I just not really be reading the Bible that much? And as I thought about that, the thought hit me. I'm sitting here in my chair, my Bible's across the room, and I'm probably still not going to stand up and go get it. Why? Oh, I felt so bad. I mean, think about this guy, this prisoner for the Christian faith, is in jail. He is willing to clean excrement off of God's word just to get a taste. How many Bibles do we have in our homes? Probably more than one. And yet, I know I'm not alone in this, and yet I, I don't want to you know, put guilt or, or shame on anybody because I was so there, and I just really was forced with this question. Is the Bible really all? that it says that it is? This was my, qu my question, my conviction, because at that time, I think the only conclusion I had was, I must not believe that the Bible is all that it says that it is, or I would use it for what it says it is. 
And so I threw myself into this exercise. I researched, you know, the accuracy of the Bible. I came across what C.S. Lewis said. He calls himself the, uh, what is it, the most reluctant convert to Christianity in all of history, in all of Christendom. And he says this because he was an atheist originally, wanting to prove that God didn't exist and the Bible wasn't real. And so he set about proving it. And let me tell you, that guy was an intellectual giant. And he couldn't do it. To the point where he had to acknowledge it is accurate, and he converted to Christianity. Another guy, an Ivy League-trained investigative journalist, Lee Strobel, did the same thing. Wanted to prove that his wife's religion was just all fancy fairy tales, but he couldn't do it, and eventually he converted to Christianity. Or there's the case of J. Warner Wallace, who was a cold case homicide detective and an atheist, who decided that he was going to apply all of his cold case homicide detective know-how to proving that the Bible was not real, was not accurate, and he did get a conviction of faith and now writes extensively, uh, was in the movie God's Not Dead and so on. And so looking through what all of these people said and reading all of the things that they read, I came to the overwhelming intellectual fact the Bible's accurate. It is. Today, just as it was written so many thousands of years ago, I am absolutely convinced the Bible is accurate. So naturally, I went and just picked up my Bible and I gobbled it up day after day, right? Moment after moment. I just couldn't wait to get into God's Word, right? No. In fact, not much changed. Strange. Why? What I came to realize is in America, we prize knowledge, specifically head knowledge intellectual knowledge. We want the credentials of people. We want their college degrees. We want to know that smart people are in charge, and we want to know facts. But at the end of the day, it's not facts. The truth is, our beliefs are based on our experiences. That is a world of difference. And so if we go into the sermon that Joshua preached last week, John 14, 7, it says, if you have known me, you have known the Father. That's okay, Caleb. That's all I was going to say on that verse. If you've known me, you have known the Father. Remember that word know is the word gnosko. And gnosko is not head knowledge. It's not flashcards. It's not anything like that. It's an experiential knowing. In fact, it's the same knowing that Mary uses when she's talking to the angel and she says, how can I be pregnant? I have never known a man. I mean, this is a word we really don't have an English translation for except to be an experiential, intimate knowledge of. So new parents in the room, we've got a few of them. How many of you guys thought you knew what it was going to be like to have kids, but now you know? But, right? So there's, there's, the, there's the knowing over here. This is the, the Greek mind, the intellectual, right? But then there's the yeah, I know. There's a big difference. And what I'm here to tell you is my conclusion that the Bible was accurate didn't matter. Is it true? Do I have an experiential understanding that it's true? This disparity, the difference between the intellectual understanding that the Bible is accurate and an experiential knowing that the Bible is true. So question, do you believe that the Bible is true? 
It's funny because as I was thinking about this point in the sermon, I thought, you know, if I had led with that at the very beginning, I would have had like all the heads shaking yes. And then I expected to have a few less shaking yes right now. That's exactly the case. But here's the real question. This is the trick question that I want to ask everybody. How do you know that you believe the Bible is true? I'm not asking how do you know the Bible to be true, but I'm asking how do you know you believe that? Yeah, that's a tough one. I had to like muddle through that one for a long time because I think this is the disconnect between the way we tend to look at the Bible and the way the Bible's actually meant to be received. Here's the test. Here's the way to know. Your action follows your belief. At least someone agrees. <laughs> your action follows your belief. What I believe is what I will act on. Let me give you an everyday example of this. And for me, this is almost like literally every day. So I have an intellectual understanding that when I get home from work after a long, hard day at my office, it's a good thing to go for a walk. I have a new puppy. It's a good idea to take that new puppy for a walk. And so when I get home, I change my clothes, and so often I find myself not lacing up my walking shoes, but instead slipping into my Crocs, which we all know you can't leave the house once you put on your Crocs. So why is that the case? Why do I do that? And the answer is, I think, is that I have an intellectual understanding of the health benefits of walking. But I have a whole lifetime of experience, specifically right before bed, that when you're tired, you rest. So what do I act on? I act on the experience more often than I act on what I know to be right. Our default is to act out our beliefs, learn through experience, rather than intellectual understanding. So what does this mean? I started with the story of Hien Pham and the Bible, and I am talking about, you know, looking like Jesus and doing the works that Jesus did. What does this mean? Well, to the extent that we don't believe the Bible is true, we will look like the world. To the extent that we do believe the Bible is true, to the world, will look like Jesus because our actions will follow our beliefs. Acts 4.13. This is one of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible. It says, now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. I love that scripture. Uneducated, untrained, and yet bold. What gives? What is it about these people? They don't look like us. Oh, those are the guys that have been with Jesus. Wow, right? So how do we change our default setting? How can we get our actions to line up with God's word? Step one, I think we've got to get our eyes off the world. The world wants to lie to us. It wants to tell us what's culturally relevant. It wants to tell us what they think is important. Never mind the fact that what's important today was the opposite 20 years ago and was, again, the opposite 20 years before that. We tend to look at the world as our litmus test of how well we're doing. But the world isn't truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's also said about him in John 1 that 
in the beginning, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Word. The Word is truth. The world is not. If you look at two, 2 Peter 2.20, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge, that's that word, gnosko again, of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. And I look at that last part of that scripture. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. And you know the thought that comes to my mind as we were all singing, I'm free. As the, the lyrics were coming up that the enemy thought he had us, but Jesus says they're mine. I think what the end of this scripture is saying is what would it be to actually know freedom and put yourself back in a cage? The latter end is worse than the beginning. It's one thing to never know that you're free. It's another thing to be free and put yourself back in the cage. And that's one of the things that I really want to emphasize today. Um, we have freedom. We are loved. Loved deeper and longer than you could ever really understand. If this message hits you as a, an excuse to be feeling shame or guilt, it's not hitting the right way. We need to understand that God has given us freedom. He's given us the authority. He's given us the grace. He's given us the power to walk in that freedom. And to the extent that we are not acting out the truth of God's word is to the extent that we're putting ourselves back in that cage. I want to get out of that cage. The world needs people who are looking like Jesus. The world needs people that are doing the works that Jesus did. Step one, get our eyes off of the world. Number two, we need to stop approaching God's word as merely a source of divinely inspired wisdom. We need to begin seeing it as a way to experience Christ and encounter God. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. How many people have heard that verse before? How many people almost have it memorized? They've heard it so many times. So look at that last line. It judges the thoughts and intents of the heart, the attitudes of the heart. What does? The Bible does. Do you, do you realize we don't read the Bible so much as it reads us? Think about that. This thing is alive. This is, this is real. It reads us. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, but the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. The Amplified Bible says, absurd and illogical. Nor can he know them, Gnosko, because they are spiritually discerned. So if we have the Holy Spirit within, we can trust him to bring about the conviction whenever we are finding ourselves in a situation where our lives are not lining up with the truth of his word. What we're not doing when we open God's word, is looking for areas that we are at fault. We're not opening God's word and trying to find out the areas of our lives that we fall short. When we open God's word, we are staring into the face of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. When we open this, we're not looking at our badness. We're not looking at our shortcomings. We're looking at the goodness of the glory of God, knowing that as we do, he's transforming us. So there was a, a story about uh, Billy Graham and his wife having dinner. They were invited to dinner at the parliament in uh, the United Kingdom. And Mrs. Graham was seated next to the exchequer of the currency. She's like, what is the exchequer of the currency? So she asked, you, what do you do? And he says, I'm in charge of all the counterfeit that comes into and out of our country. And Mrs. Graham says, oh my, you must, you must see a lot of counterfeit bills just all day long. And he said, no ma'am, I only study the real thing. Because by studying the real thing, I can instantly spot a counterfeit. Our job here with God's word is to stare into the face of Christ, to see him, to gaze upon his glory, not to look at our shortcomings, but rather to look at his goodness and then let the Holy Spirit say, hey, this area of your life is out of alignment. Oh, there's so much more. That's the conviction. Step three. When we have had it brought to our attention that there's an area of our life that we have exalted as true based on our experiences rather than the truth of God's word, and that's revealed to us, what do we do? Repent. It is a two-syllable word. It's pretty simple. Repent is the Greek word metanoio, which means to change the mind, to change the inner man, particularly with reference to accepting the will of God. Now, there's four keys, I think, to this word repentance. The first is you have to have a revelation of what's wrong because you've now begun to understand what's actually right. This has to be revelation. This can't be, oh no, I fell down again, I'm sorry. Or what happens maybe in my household occasionally with my kids is, you know, they, they trip somebody and they say, I'm sorry, forgive me, and then they're on to the next thing. That's not really repentance though, right? A repentance is to have an understanding of this is the truth of God's word, and I've chosen something lesser. Lord, forgive me. Asking forgiveness is the second key to that word. Ask forgiveness. Acknowledge that you've chosen something less than the fullness of God's truth. The third key is to change your mind. Get your eyes off of what's wrong and really focus on what's right. Pretty simple so far, but repentance isn't easy because there is this fourth key, agreement to move forward in the will of God. That's what makes it hard because it requires the fourth step, and that fourth step is faith. So faith to take the step into the unseen, not based on experience. So we've heard that uh, seeing is believing, right? Walking out your life based on your experience of what's happened in the past is kind of like that very same thing. I see it, therefore I believe it. Um, but Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We can change our default by the continual habit and practice of choosing to step out in faith rather than stepping out based on what our experiences have shown us. 
if our experiences don't line up with the word of God, then our experiences aren't correct. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 actually says, you know, this is one of the hallmarks of being a believer. Faith is, or, I'm going to read that one. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. That's one of the hallmarks of being a believer. How many times have you heard that? We walk by faith, not by sight. Yet, if action follows belief, that should mean that when we step out, we are always stepping out into the unknown. That is a tough place to be. But as we continually step out time and time again in those experiences, we sell ourselves short. As we continually step out as a response to faith, we begin to build our faith. Our works begin to look like Jesus. We begin to look like Jesus. For an example of this, I want to conclude the story of Hien Pham. So the day came when Hien was finally released from prison. Knowing, though, that the Vietnamese, the Viet Cong, were hostile to Christianity, he knew that his only hope was to escape Vietnam. And so he, with 53 others, put together plan after plan that failed to get out of Vietnam until finally they arrived at this conclusion. We need to build a boat and sail to Thailand. That's the only thing that we're going to be able to do that's going to be able to get us out. It's kind of our last hope. And so with these 53 people, they put Hien in charge of building a boat to get off of Vietnam. And everything was going really well, all according to plan, until just a few days before they were ready to set sail, there was a knock at the door. Four Viet Cong soldiers. Are you planning to escape? They asked Hien. And Hien just kind of stood back. No. We have our sources. They say that you're planning to escape. Is it true? And he just concocted some story that was able to convince them, and they went away. Phew, right? Well, Hien, in that situation, ended up being pretty disappointed himself. And if we look at this in the context of action follows belief, we see that Hien was choosing to act based on his belief that to tell them the truth meant imprisonment. He recognized this too, and he prayed. He said, here I go again, Lord, trying to manipulate my own destiny, too unteachable in my spirit to really believe that you can lead me past any obstacle. He then prayed that if the Viet Cong soldiers should return, he'd have the strength to tell them the truth. And then he prayed that they'd never come back again. So everything continued to go well until the night that they were ready to set sail. Hien's getting all of his final things packed up. He's ready to walk out the door. And as he's about to open the door, pounding on the door. He opens. Guess who? The four Viet Cong soldiers. We know that you are planning to escape. Is it true? Point blank. What does he do? He takes a deep breath and he says, yes. Me and 53 others, we plan to set sail tonight. Do you want to arrest me? And they look at each other. They lean in and they whisper, no, we want to go with you. So they get on the boat. They set sail right into this huge storm. Hien falls down on his face. He recounts this. I cried out to God, did you bring us out here just to die? And then he wraps up his story by saying, can you believe those four Viet Cong soldiers were all fishermen and they knew how to sail? And so they took over the vessel. And because of that, we were able to make it to, Viet to Thailand 
but without their sailing ability, we would have died. Now, we see the miraculous outcome of this story. But you know, the miracle happened because Hien chose to not step out on his experience, but to step out on the truth of God's word. When we step out based on our experiences, God's like, okay, you do this. When we step out on the truth of his word, he says, okay, you need me. You've called me in to help. You're out on a limb because I called you there. I'm going to catch you. It's only when we step out on the truth of God's word that he's there to help us. When we want to do it ourselves, it doesn't work that way. So the continual practice of stepping out in faith is the thing that develops our confidence to the point that we believe God's word is true and stepping out becomes our new default. But when we don't step out, we're depriving ourselves of the opportunity to change our beliefs. It's kind of that simple. So think about it today. How many times have we learned by experience to operate one way? Let that convict you next time you're about to take a step that's a default step. And ask yourself, is that default really what the Lord is calling me to do? Or is there something better? Remember, it's God's goodness that drives us to repentance. If the Holy Spirit's convicted you today, immediately, of any of these areas where your experience has taught you something that's short of the truth of God's word, let us pray with you. But as we go forth from today, let's throw ourselves into the exercise of encountering God through his word. Let's see what that truth actually is. He's the one that gave us the authority and the power and the grace to live at that level. But only if we choose to step into it. Let's ask forgiveness of the Holy Spirit as he convicts us to unbelief. Let's change our minds to establish a new default setting of stepping out in faith as the Lord leads. And in this way, when the world sees us and the works that we do, they'll know we've been with Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness that drives us to repentance. Thank you, Lord, that our job is not to look at our faults, but to look at you, to look upon your glory, to look upon your face, to get to really experientially, intimately know you, our Savior. Thank you for the price that you paid on the cross to bridge that gap that we can re be restored in that relationship with you. And Lord, as we are falling short, build us up, strengthen us. Give us the conviction, Lord. Give us the strength, the power to be able to step out in your truth rather than based on our old experiences. We just pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.